Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press podcast, and I'm Michael Hoke. Why did humans abandon hunting and gathering for communities based on livestock and grains? Was it the domestication of plants and animals that allowed humans to settle in one place and thrive? Many p- people believe that this led to villages and towns, and then to law and order and governance that set the stage for modern society. My guest today says that isn't the case. James C. Scott is Sterling Professor of Political Science and co-director of the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University. He has written numerous books, including his most recent, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. James, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. To, uh, to set things up, uh, though you found reasons to dispute it, uh, what, is the, what is the common narrative for uh, humans and the formation of early civilization? Well, this is the, if you like, uh, school book, uh, grammar school, or even high school um, narrative that I think we have all absorbed, including uh, myself. I'm, I'm not uh, immune to this uh, narrative. I think it's the narrative that I grew up with. Um, and the narrative basically is that um, we were all hunters and foragers and gatherers, um, collectors, if you like, uh, moving and mobile. And then, uh, for one reason or another, we managed to domesticate grains. And that was the possibility for fixed field agriculture. Uh, And fixed field agriculture allowed us, for the first time, to settle down in one place, which it is assumed we wanted desperately to do. And it is also assumed that this was an easier form of gaining a subsistence, that it gave us more leisure, better nutrition, uh, and the possibility of creating larger societies, village cities, uh, law, civilization, and so on. So the domestication of grains, I think, along with the domestication of animals, is seen uh, are seen as the key steps to allow us to both grow our population to have a big food supply uh, and to create civilization. And how long ago was this uh, sort of transformation from hunter-gatherer to uh, fixed field taking place approximately? So the earliest evidence we have for the existence of domesticated grains, there's some dispute about this, but it's around 9,000 BC. It's quite early, nine, 8,000 at the latest, probably. We have evidence of um, domesticated grains. And, and for me, the surprising thing was that we don't have any evidence for uh, communities existing uh, largely by agriculture on fixed fields for another 4,000 years. So that 4,000-year gap is something that startled me and set me uh, set me to thinking. And is there uh, a theory or an explanation to this gap? Oh, the explanation now, which is pretty well accepted, and so a lot of the things that I'm 
conveying in this book are things that are known to archaeologists and evolutionary biologists and people who work with skeletal remains from these early periods and so on. The gap uh, that most people, most people understand this gap to be a product of the fact that fixed field agriculture, particularly plow agriculture and irrigation, involve a tremendous amount of work. Um, and so that it is much more labor intensive. It returns less calories per unit of labor than hunting and gathering in favorable uh, environments. And so the argument is that people knew uh, how to domesticate crops, and they actually might have planted tiny little plots here and there for a variety and so on, but they weren't so crazy as to uh, rely entirely on agricultural fixed fields because that involved a tremendous amount of labor, and it was much easier. We have to remember, and I think that's something we also forget because we think of the Middle East, uh, the area that I'm talking about, Mesopotamia, as being dry and arid and only made fruitful by irrigation. 6,000 years uh, before Christ, um, this was a wetland paradise. Uh, the sea level was 300 feet higher than it is uh, today. The Red Sea went up much, much further into the Mesopotamian uh, alluvium. And so people could practice, the earliest form of agriculture that people practiced was something that still can be found in different places in the world called flood retreat agriculture. And you can think of this in the Nile Valley. It was the classic form of early agriculture. You get a flood. What the flood does is to destroy all competing weeds and vegetation. And it leaves a little deposit of nutritious silt. Uh, and as the flood then recedes back into the channel, you have a perfectly uh, harrowed field that's quite nutritious. And all you have to do is broadcast seeds. And the result is a. Uh, this is the kind of agriculture that was the first agriculture. And it was resorted to because it was the easiest form of agriculture. And um, where did this misconception of sort of the desert civilization come from? Oh, I think... Our, our understanding of the different sea levels after the last glacial maximum, which was 18,000, 20,000 years ago, um, that's only come in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. And so most of the people who were working on early civilization assumed that the aridity that they found in this area had been true forever. Uh, and so it's only recently, and I owe this actually to a great um, a, a person who did this through remote sensing, Jennifer Pornell, um, who uh, establishes beyond any doubt at all exactly uh, how abundant this wetland was in which people had access to large numbers of things in salty environments and freshwater environments as the tide moved, uh, clams and uh, shellfish, uh, wild pigs, uh, and so on. That is to say, this was an enormously fruitful and diverse landscape in which uh, a subsistence was easy. We know today, by the way, that hunters and gatherers only spend about half of their time 
for their subsistence. Uh, so the idea that these people, that hunters and gatherers in general are living one day away from starvation and living hand to mouth is incorrect. They, even in the Mesopotamian alluvium, they thrived by knowing when the migrations of fish and birds and gazelles were coming. And just like the people in the Pacific Northwest with salmon runs, if you're the right at the right place at the right time, you can get most of the protein for a year in um, uh, in a week or two. And in, in fact, for New Englanders who are listening to this, um, the interesting thing is that one can find in the uh, estuaries of most of the major rivers uh, in New England a uh, structures built by Native Americans that were designed uh, to funnel the eels as they went out to sea at the end of September, right about now, um, and they would funnel them into sort of uh, areas where they could be netted, they could be smoked and salted and so on, and they had most of their protein for the year in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I, that's a that's a great point that this we have this misconception of the hunter gatherer being almost dead all the time and having to really struggle. Um, it it starts to sound like maybe the harder work <laughs> was moving to these agrarian societies where you had to you know work the land and 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 really worry about diseases of crops and and of living in close quarters. So why why did we why did we do that? Why did we become that? That's the big question, and I'm sh- I'm I'm. Uh, sorry to report that uh, <laughs> this is in great dispute. And since I'm not the kind of archaeologist and climatologist, um, uh, I try actually in this book to uh, tell people what we do know fairly definitively. And the things that are still in dispute, uh, I try to describe the dispute without being capable of settling it myself. So there are several reasons uh, that are given for the fact that we ended up in these concentrated agricultural societies with domesticated animals. One reason is climate change. The argument is that there was at a key period, um, something like eight centuries ago, something called the Younger Dryas, which was a cold snap that lasted about uh, a thousand years. And uh, the argument is that it became extremely dry in that brief period of a thousand years. And people had to huddle next to sources of water and uh, moisture. And they then, they therefore had to make more out of a smaller patch of land and agriculture was one of the alternatives that they had. The other, one of the other theories is that um, it's called the broad spectrum revolution, which exists all over the world. And it's attributed to two things, the population growth in which there were more people sharing the same amount of land, and so you had to work that land more intensively. Um, And in addition to the increase in population, the argument is that the big game, uh, the sort of easy, low-hanging fruit, if you like, (laughs) of hunting, uh, had more or less disappeared by then, and people had to live lower on the trophic level. That means shellfish, agriculture, um, not sort of uh, large animals like gazelles and so on. We know that this is the case, by the way, for the new world. Um, The migration across the Bering Strait is about 15,000 years ago. And within three or 4,000 years, these migrants had finished off all the large uh, animals 
in uh, in the New World by and large, and you then get sort of the beginnings of agriculture there as well. And you talk a bit about the the sort of four domestications: uh, fire, plants, um, us is one of them. Um, so what? Let's start with fire. What? What? Uh, one of the common ideas is, is humans discovering fire and then putting it to use. Um, how did that come to be, and, and what were some of the uses of fire other than cooking and things like that that, that early humans were using? The fire is the big one, uh, at least in my view and other people's view. Fire, exactly when we have evidence of human fire is also disputed. It existed at least 400,000 years ago. Now. Homo sapiens comes into being, and the modern form of humans comes into being about 200,000 years ago. So the point is that this is not a Homo sapiens invention. This uh, Neanderthals had fire, Homo erectus had fire, our predecessors invented fire, and uh, there's evidence of that at least by uh, 400,000 years ago. So the importance of fire, um, and the people in the forestry school can tell you more than I in this respect, is that it's used as a landscaping tool. We know that Native Americans in New England used fire in order to clear uh, areas because they knew that the sort of berries uh, would grow back in these areas, that they would provide forage for wild animals who could then be hunted and trapped uh, in these areas. And so the fire as a landscaping tool to create hunting grounds one must think, actually, of Native Americans as hunters, not as people who go out into the woods and hope to stumble on something, but uh, but as people who are, as all over the world, who are creating landscapes to attract the kind of game that they want then to harvest. So this is a kind of horticulture, if you like, slow-motion horticulture over time in order to provide subsistence uh, rations. And there's no part of the world, even um, the Amazonia, um, uh, that has not been burned over in one way or another. So Homo sapiens has been using fire for um, something close to 500,000 years, and it's transformed the landscape uh, of, from what it would have been had we not been using fire. So my my impression is that until very, very recently, fire was the great landscaping tool until we got dynamite and, <laughs> and bulldozers and uh, uh, reinforced concrete and the rest. <laughs> and um, the fourth one, I mentioned plants, humans, and uh, as fire. The fourth one is animals. And obviously, you know, there are plenty of people with domesticated animals living with them now. Um, what role did the domestication of animals play in these early uh, states? Well, it was also extremely important. And uh, if we take a step back, um, it's worth thinking of what we mean by the word domestication. And in, in, in my view, and not just in my view, but if you think about domestication, domestication involves taking control over the reproduction of a particular flora or fauna. That is to say, what happens with domesticated plants is that we then direct its reproduction by collecting seeds of a certain kind, planting seeds that we know will um, 
uh, grow out with the following features that we desire, easy to harvest, easy to thresh, and so on. So we then shape these, um, uh, these plants such that these plants can generally not thrive on their own. That is, we have to tend them. Uh, and the same for taking charge of um, domesticated animals. That is, presumably, we captured the young of wild animals and perhaps raised them. Uh, and over time, this became a kind of habit. And we then bred, uh, I can talk as a, as a sheep raiser for 20 years, um, and one always uses sheep as a metaphor for cowardliness and crowd behavior and not individual personalities and so on. And it's always struck me, having raised sheep for 20 years, that we have been selecting for docility uh, among sheep. Uh, if you're going to kill a sheep for a feast, you're going to kill the one that's always breaking down the, bar the fences and so <laughs> on and making the most trouble. And so we have been selecting for docility among sheep and uh, then we have the uh, the gall to turn around and insult them for having a characteristic that we, in fact, have uh, promoted quite deliberately and so on. So the point about domestication is that it creates a kind of landscape of crops and animals that have to be defended, um, that cannot survive on their own, and that have to be protected from the wild. And this means... Uh, and I think that's one of the important lessons that I learned by reading this material. It creates a new thing in the world, which is what I call the domus. Um, and the domus is this collection of the hearth, um, a crops, domesticated animals, and not just those domesticated plants and animals, but all the things that come to feed at the domus because there are lots of good things to eat, like the sparrows and mice uh, and rats and pigeons and all of the fleas and ticks and so on who come with all of those animals. Uh, and that makes that domus not just unique and new in the world, but it makes it a perfect epidemiological storm for new diseases. And that transitions well into this this idea of illnesses that came about because of um, you know sort of the the growing of agriculture and and living close quarters. What were what were some of the illnesses that members of these earliest states faced that they may that may not have been an issue for their hunter gatherer predecessors? Actually, almost all of the things that we classify they're called uh, what a community community-dependent infections, or there are the diseases of crowding, essentially. Um, and they're spread either by coughing or sneezing or uh, touching. Uh, and all of the, in a sense, the diseases that have been responsible for a tremendous amount of infant and adult mortality uh, from the beginning of civilization until fairly recently with the invention of vaccines are mumps, measles, chicken pox. I mean, you think of all the things we vaccinate, diphtheria, uh, most of the poxes, and almost all of these diseases are diseases that depend, that move from domesticated animals to human beings. Um, and uh, they are diseases that 
if, if you like, have jumped the species mm -hmm. uh, barrier. And the only reason they have been able to do that is because they are all crowded into the same, into the same space. And the result then is uh, you need a certain number of infectable people for a disease uh, in order to get a grip on a population. And before these sedentary agriculture communities, there, there were not uh, collections large enough of people and human beings in order to support these infections and the transmission of disease that would remain in these areas. Uh, and so it's not that these diseases were rare. It's that these diseases did not exist before the beginning of human civilization. And it was perhaps one of the largest dangers uh, both to uh, domesticated animals and human beings. And I also make the argument, which I think is indisputable too, that having crops, uh, crops are crowded as well. That is to say they are uh, plants of the same species crowded on the same uh, field. And so if there's a disease or a rust uh, or plague that infects them, it's likely to sweep through the whole field. So in a sense, this early civilization is uniquely vulnerable to new diseases that did not exist for our hunting and gathering ancestors. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting. In a way, as we're creating these new societies for humans, we're also creating these new societies for, for diseases and, and animals and, and changing everything that we come into contact with, which is your point of the domus. Um, going back to the hunter-gatherer, just to sort of get an idea of, of what that was like, what, what would a day in the life of a, of a hunter-gatherer be, have been? A day in the life of a hunter and gatherer. That's interesting. Uh, the um, um, the argument that I make in the book is that the if I can transpose your question to the a, a year in the life <laughs> of a hunter and gatherer, especially in areas where there's a kind of seasonality, that the the world of the hunters and gatherers is governed by the pulses of the natural world and the natural uh, movement of animals and birds and fish. And so the kind of genius of hunting and gathering is this knowledge of the migrations and pulses of the natural world. So that it, to take, give you a concrete example, uh, in the Mesopotamian alluvium, there were annual huge migrations of gazelles, and uh, that was the major source of protein. They occurred during a two- or three-week period uh, every year. People knew when they happened. They created these what they're called desert kites um, and these um, uh, funnels uh, that would direct the herd of gazelles into an increasingly narrowing, think of it like a fish trap that mm -hmm. sort of gradually narrows, a corral that could be a killing field and you could then kill the gazelles at your leisure. Uh, it's exactly uh, what was the principle behind the capture of eels in New England, uh, for example. And so uh, what hunters and gatherers knew was the periodicity, the pulses of when the 
bird flights came, the bird migrations came, and the birds were, of course, often following fish migrations. They knew when the fish were coming in large numbers, like the like blues off the coast of, uh, of New England. When they come, uh, it's easy to catch blues. You don't even need a hook. Uh, and so what uh, hunters and gatherers do is they place themselves at the intersection of these migration routes in uh, – uh, choke points, if you like, uh, like the Pacific salmon uh, in the Northwest, and they can catch an enormous amount of animal protein in that uh, period. They also understand exactly when certain trees uh, fruit ripen, and there's something called mast fruiting, and there are the trees and uh, nuts that only fruit every three years or so, and there's a great cornucopia. Uh, one often gets pigs, wild pigs coming through during these periods. Um, and so the the way to understand the hunters and gatherers is the, not that they get up in the morning, uh, have breakfast. Of course, they don't have breakfast in the song. They eat during the whole day. Uh, they don't have meals the way we have them uh, in the general sense. Uh, they don't go out and hope something happens. They actually are taking advantage of the natural rhythms of a world in order to grab the fruits and nuts um, and tubers that uh, when they're ripe uh, and before the other animals get them um, and to master these migration routes and take as much protein as they can at the, at the particular time when the migrations are happening. Uh, so you've mentioned that you have sheep and, and you have a farm yourself. Um, so if you had the choice, hunter-gatherer or, uh, or agrarian? Oh, I think that's um, – I've never been – even though I run the program in agrarian studies, um, which has been around for 26 years now, um, I, I don't much um, like scratching the earth uh, and, uh, and growing crops. I do a little bit of that. I have a garden and I have a hay field. But the hay field is to feed my livestock. Uh, and so I've always loved uh, taking care of animals. Uh, that's p p uh, peculiar, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and I did my own shearing as well, which is the hardest thing I've ever learned to do, I think. Um, so uh, I find that the, I've also raised bees, um, which is a kind of insect livestock, if you like. Uh, and so I find the kind of natural world of animals there's nothing more more beautiful and moving than a little baby lamb that's kicking up its hind legs just out of the sheer love of being alive uh, shortly after being born uh, and so I found that enormously gratifying and to tell the truth once you have good fences and uh, a kind of a barn that's organized reasonably well uh, raising sheep's not a tremendous amount of work um, so as these as these uh, civilizations are, are are forming and becoming larger, we are introduced to the term barbarian, which you take issue with that term. Why why is that? Well, barbarian is another word for the people who are outside the state. It's um, uh, it's in a sense how the people in a quote unquote civilization describe people who are not part of that civilization. And of course, the original term describes the Greek 
imitation of what they thought was, I think, Persian probably, although the Persians were quite as civilized as the Greeks were, uh, but ba 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 barbarian. Um, in fact, um, the name uh, Barbara uh, is a Roman name uh, for captured slave women who became wives. Uh, you know, bar the, the the woman's name Barbara these days doesn't carry any of those connotations. <laughs> but originally in Roman society, it meant uh, a woman who was originally a slave and then became um, uh, uh, was married and freed. Of course, these civilizations, uh, when the first ones were formed, they were formed of barbarians, <laughs> uh, and the uh, uh, there were all kinds of reasons, as I detail to run away from these civilizations, either because of civil wars, uh, conscription, taxation, disease, and so on. So the point is that one should not think of this early world as a world in which there are civilized people and barbarians and they are hermetically sealed off from one another. Uh, civilizations are collapsing all the time, these early uh, agrarian settlements. People are going back to uh, hunting and gathering, sometimes quite happily. In South America, there are people who practiced agriculture and who took up hunting and gathering when the Spanish came because they associated the Spanish settlements with disease and, and, and forced labor. And so they became foragers and hunters and gatherers. They, if you like, they went back a level of civilization <laughs> in order to be free and to be more mobile. The argument was made to me by a Native American that he thought that the Navajo took up sheep raising in order that they could move with the sheep and get out of the way of the Spanish, uh, of the Spanish settlements. And what is, what, what is the biggest or, or a, a couple of the biggest misconceptions of these early societies that you would like to see end? Well, I suppose the largest realization that I would like to bring to my readers is the realization that this transition was a very, very long transition. It was generally not good for your health, uh, that it involved, it was resisted for a long time because it involved so much labor that uh, most of these early civilizations were as well. It's, it's a, if you like, it's the less pretty vision of human progress. Uh, and I think much more substantiated by the facts we now know than the earlier uh, schoolbook uh, version uh, of this. And it's also true, I devote a chapter to this, uh, that because of rates of mortality and people running away from these early states, almost all of these states were slave-taking states, and their wars were wars of capture. It's true for the Greeks, true for the Romans, um, true for Mesopotamia, even though it's a much smaller uh, society. So uh, more than 50% of the Athenian population are slaves. Um, they're not the free Athenians that we associate uh, with the demos and, uh, and public uh, culture and democracy and so on. Uh, they're in the silver mines and quarries uh, and so on. But most of the population that sustains Athens is not free. And the same, of course, for Sparta, who settle on the backs of the helots 
and make of them a kind of slaves. In Mesopotamia, we're talking about, a, let's say, a city like Ur or Uruk that had 50,000 people and 9,000 of them were slaves. And the word for slave uh, is the combination in cuneiform of the symbol for mountain and woman. Uh, and these were mostly women captured from the mountains who were weaving uh, garments of linen and mostly of wool uh, that then were the major trade good that the Mesopotamians uh, exchanged for uh, for minerals, for wood, uh, and for things that uh, they could not get in their own uh, ecosystem. All right. Well, the book is Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. James, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. And please, if you can, take just 30 seconds to give us a rating. We really appreciate it. And be sure to visit uh, YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes and find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.